I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. This is Nighthawk Calling. Welcome to another segment of History Hack. We are coming to you from a sunny Poland. Not sure what the weather's like in the UK, but I'm sure you guys will tell us. Talk to me, Alex. What exciting guests have we got on today? Um, well, I'm really excited because this is like, uh, I studied this period for A-level and I absolutely love it. If you don't know who Susanna Lipscomb is, then you're basically, you live under a rock. Um, she is an awesome historian of the Tudors and, and that broadly that period. Um, and we have brought her on here today to talk about my favourite book that she's ever written. Uh, Susanna, Hi. Hi, thank you for that introduction, it's very kind. And the <laughs> no, answer is, it's cloudy here. Oh yeah, it is. Very cloudy. Are you in London as well, Susanna? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not far from you actually, just down the road in Surrey nowadays. Um, so uh, yeah, and obviously we're all under house arrest at the moment. But um, it's uh, but you know we're doing all right. You have a little person guys? in the house though, don't you? I have a, a almost one year old in the house. Yes, that makes the days interesting. Gives yeah. us joy. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, keeps keeps us uh, humble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just wondering how it how it is to be sort of in semi lockdown with a very small child. Um, wondering if it's any. Well, actually, before we came on air, we were having a, um, we started a really interesting discussion, didn't we, about the difference between uh, introverts and extroverts? Um, saying that obviously most historians will probably find this not too far removed from their own normal existence, but if you're an extrovert, we were saying they must be really suffering. Yes, people who need to get out and see people are going to, I mean, I mean, it's not the end of the world, is it? But it's quite, it's hard if that's your MO. Whereas if you're a historian, quite often much of your time is spent at your own desk anyway. So it's not that much of a change from the old routine. But you know, now you've got your partner with you and maybe your child or children. Um, but like by comparison to people who are in other countries who are suffering i mean the situation around the world is much more bleak than for many of us here and i think that it really i'm really feeling grateful because i live um uh, in a house with a garden you know i think that having to, to live in a flat at the moment especially on days when it's warmer and you just want to be outside that must be pretty hard if you've got kids who are climbing the walls that must be hard um if you you know you've lost your job there's so many scenarios that where people are really struggling um that i'm actually just sort of counting my blessings at the moment frankly yeah I did. my very good friend is actually in a flat with no garden um with her three children four five and eleven um they all have it or they've all they're all the symptoms are subsiding now but she has literally not put her head out of the door for about 11 days now and she she's starting she's she's a, going a little bit mad she calls me and just just waffles just nothing is coherent um so i just sort of sit there and, and let her waffle um and just uh hope for her sake soon she can at least get out and have a walk or something because yeah it, it seems it seems really tough on people like you say that are either extrovert and hardly ever spend time in their house or people that don't have the release of sort of a garden but let's move away from coronavirus oh we do ask people actually what's the most ridiculous rumor you've heard about coronavirus we we generally ask people about like cures and how to stave it off like we've had the one about the hairdryer up the nose and things like that have you seen any no, I haven't. I've been pretty selective. I've been off Twitter for Lent, as it, as it did. I have been on Facebook, and I did see somebody say on there, "This is the lentiest Lent ever." But um, you know, didn't plan on giving quite up, quite so much up for Lent. But anyway, <laughs> um, but I have, but but not being on Twitter has meant that I've avoided 
quite a bit of that sort of stuff. And I, you know, I'm so I'm listening to the news, um, but really trying to limit my exposure to some of the more extreme things. So actually, apart from hearing about lemon juice or you know homemade sanitizers, uh, hand sanitizers, I haven't really come across that much of the conspiracy theory stuff <laughs> or well, the, the homemade remedies. So you seem to. I wish I could. I wish I said I was going to do all of that, and I haven't. And I have ended up reading all the crazy stuff and downloading all the Trump memes and stuff like that. I wish I had your dis- uh, self discipline in terms of uh, my exposure to it, because I'm pretty sure you'll be uh, far more balanced uh, mentally than the rest of us who are reading all the lunacy. But let's get on to the history anyway, because that's why we're here. Um, you have an excellent new book out, and we will get to that at the end. We will have a little chat about it. But I asked you to come on here um, for purely and wholly selfish reasons to talk about my favourite book you've ever written, which is 1536. Um, because I, I just feel like this this is relevant again now, because the Hilary Mantel book has just come out. People are really interested in uh, Henry VIII and, and Thomas Cromwell um, at the moment, and that we could have a chat about this book. So tell just quickly tell us, what is the concept? Why did you pick one year? So the subtitle was The Year That Changed Henry VIII, and that's it in a nutshell, really, that Henry goes from being this young, uh, gorgeous, um, affable Renaissance prince to becoming a ruthless, obese tyrant uh, over the course of his reign, has been known by historians for a long time. But it seemed to me when I was starting to think about him uh, many years ago now, when I wrote this book, that it, see, that it seemed to me that there were a series of events that happened in this one year, 1536, that together contained all the necessary ingredients to, to foster... Um, to catalyze, to entrench this change in Henry. And if we think so much of the time up until that point, when people have thought about Henry VIII, there had been very much a thematic study uh, that actually with these elements hadn't been thought of as lived experience. If you go chronologically through this year and imagine what it might be to live through that, then one can start to understand why maybe Henry became who he who was by the end of his reign. Um- yeah, I I think this is one of those books where I'm guessing the publisher slash agent, whoever saw your breakdown and your sort of uh, synopsis when you decided you want to write it, just went, oh, my God, why has no one ever done this before? Um, let's talk about, let's, let's, I will do it a bit thematically. So if we just have a chat about the personal stuff he went through in that year, um, really everything comes back to the succession, doesn't it? So at the beginning of 1536, Henry still has no legitimate male heir, just a bastard. Um he has uh, a daughter that he's bastardised himself, Mary, and he has a baby girl, Elizabeth, who in dynastic terms is just useless at this point because if you stick her on the throne, um, you have uh, uh, carnage um, with Anne Boleyn. So why is time running out for Henry and why is um, the succession such an issue for 1536? And also, why does time run out for Queen Anne in this year? Okay, so the first thing to say is that Henry turns 45 in 1536, which is important in Tudor terms because it's considered, sort of roughly speaking, to be the beginning of old age. And um, his own father had died in his 50s, his grandfather had died in his 50s, and he knew that he needed really (laughs) to get to, um, uh, he, what he really wanted was an adult son by that point, but he needed an adult son, a legitimate adult son as soon as possible, and ideally more than one, because he himself had been a second son when his older brother had died. And he needed a son to secure the line of succession, because up until that point, uh, no woman had independently ruled Britain, or England as it was at the time, without uh, there being a civil war over her uh, rulership so there'd be no uncontested female rule it was not considered that a woman could rule and as we know later in the century they very much could but that is all with hindsight so at the time it's thought well princesses will marry they will marry either a foreign prince who will therefore dominate the country or they'll marry a member of the nobility um, and that will raise up one noble family to rule over the country because women become subservient to their husbands. So you need a prince. An illegitimate son obviously is likely to be contested as well. His son Henry Fitzroy, who turned 17 this year, could have been legitimised that year. And in fact, there's some evidence that Henry's thinking of doing that in 1536. But what he really needs is a male heir. So a few years earlier, he had... um, 
as we all know, <laughs> dispense with Catherine of Aragon uh, in a long-winded process that involves breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church and had married Anne Boleyn, um, and then after that had his marriage to Anne, Catherine of Aragon and old. Um, in that order. And then Anne had had a child, but the child had been, as you say, a daughter, Princess Elizabeth. And since then, she hadn't successfully borne him a son. She does uh, conceive a son, we now know, at the end of 1535, but she miscarries in January 1536. So, um, and one line that's gone famously through history um, was said by an ambassador at the time was the question of whether she had miscarried of her saviour. Because what we know is happens four months later after the miscarriage in May 1536, Anne Boleyn is uh, arrested and ultimately executed on charges of adultery, incest and conspiring the king's death. And again, with hindsight, we know that Henry ends up executing two of his wives. But at the time, no Queen of England had been executed. Uh, it was unthinkable. And yet it happens in this year. And the question of why it happens is, is one that has foxed and, and bewildered historians for years. Um, and historians have reached many different conclusions about it. Um, and I, my personal opinion is that she wasn't guilty of the charges against her, that the evidence suggests rather that Henry was persuaded that she was, um, and uh, that therefore he took effectively savage revenge but i i can go into that in loads more detail if you want <laughs> oh we will in a second i just want to ask you though because we had a really interesting question come in so henry has a jousting accident in this year as well doesn't he and someone came on and asked on twitter um, and i apologize so much for not making a note of who it was but thank you um and came on and said what's this is there evidence because they've seen something about the possibility of um brain damage um, minor brain damage and that that might have affected how Henry starts to behave in 1536 and I assume it's with reference to this accident can you tell us what happened yes so on the 24th of January 1536 Henry has this accident whilst jousting we know that he was unconscious for two hours which is quite significant in terms of possible brain damage we don't know exactly what happened it doesn't seem to have been at a tournament so it was probably practicing um, we don't know if the horse landed on him um, you know he would have fallen down in his armor it was obviously a heavy blow um, and one report from Yusuf Chapri who's the ambassador from the Holy Roman Empire says everyone thought it was a miracle he wasn't killed and what we can um, conclude from that is well two different things the the first thing is this question about a head injury it is entirely possible that he did um injure himself in that way uh that i've talked to pathologists and other medical experts about it and it's possible that he bruised his cerebral cortex which is the part of the brain that um helps you sort of not act like an adolescent all the time sorry no offense to adolescents but you know what I mean it allows you to um it allows you to kind of c control yourself and bring yourself you know consider other people bring yourself into line you know um and uh that if if so that might explain at least in part some of his character change the problem is a question of evidence because we don't have the medical records that would allow us to reach that conclusion with any certainty. So it's all supposition. So, you know, they didn't have MRI scans at the time. We don't have any information of that kind on that kind of scale. So if we can suppose from the evidence that might've happened, what we can say with more certainty is that he opened up an ulcer on his leg, um, which had opened up an adjusting accident a few years earlier, but had been healed with the help of um, Thomas Vickery. But in this year, it's opened up and it never heals again. Um, it gives him constant and debilitating pain for the rest of his life. I mean, it's very, very serious. It's, uh, it produces occasionally blood clots. Probably in the end, it's what kills him. He dies of a pulmonary embolism. And it's probably a blood clot from this ulcer uh, that has travelled to his heart, uh, says the non-medical doctor trying to explain it. But, you know, <laughs> so that's as I understand it as best as possible. Um, and... So, uh, and in, you know, 1540, for example, he goes black in the face. It's a sort of, it's, the, it's kind of like DVT, if you're trying to understand it. Um, so, and they think he might die in 1540. So this gives him constant pain. And of course, I think, and I think pain is really important in terms of explaining somebody's change in temperament. So the head injury is possible. Um, but the, the, what with the actual injury to his leg and with this host of events that happen this year, we've got 
um, lots of emotional explanations um, as well as the sort of uh, physical explanations for Henry's decline. When you talk about uh, permanent adolescence, I know that for my research perspective, I'm now going to trail through everything I have on Edward VIII and see if he ever got a bonk to the head that might have affected his cerebral cortex. Um, but Alina, you've got, and I, I really want you to ask this question because I, I think it's great and I would really like Susanna to answer it. Go on. I do. And I ha- I'm really sorry for my lack of knowledge. Please forgive me. <clears throat> So before before lack of knowledge is never something to be forgiven. It's, it always just means that there's there's something exciting more to find out. So. Exactly, yeah, I like exactly. that. <laughs> that's, that's, I'm gonna I'm gonna use that forever now. I'm gonna retweet that. So my question is: Before 1536, if he abandons Anne, surely he's got to go back to Catherine, wouldn't you say? But it's unsavoury because she's unable to give him any more children. It's uh, yes. it's just difficulty. It's eradicated though at the beginning of the year, isn't it? That's right, Catherine dies. So she, um, so she dies uh, on the 7th of January, 1536. Specific, specific dates. So, um, okay, so yes, she's unable to give him children, basically, I mean, for, for a start, they haven't been sleeping together for at least five years, probably much longer. That's not going to help. But also, um, Catherine probably has gone through the menopause um, some point in the 1520s. Um, as you know, she'd had six pregnancies um and i mean just heartbreakingly only one of them has resulted in a living child there'd been a boy who died after seven weeks there had been stillbirth there had been infant mortality um so poor old catherine was was had been put through the ringer but after being put aside by henry in 1531 she had lived um swearing to the end that she was his wife through until early 1536 when she probably died we think of stomach cancer though as I say, medical records of the time mean that we are making educated guesses. Um, before that, I don't know, if he put Anne aside, would he have had to go back to Catherine? Given that he had um, had his marriage to Catherine annulled and had done so on, uh, perhaps not that persuasive, but persuasive enough to him, basis that uh, scripture did not allow him to have been married to Catherine, that the dispensation that the Pope had granted him um, before their marriage was worthless because it was forbidden to marry a, a, your brother's widow and that if you did so you'd be childless that probably would have still stood if he put Anne aside I don't personally think from that, that we have enough evidence I think it's a bit more of an some historians have argued it, I think it's become a bit of an urban legend that Henry was totally fed up with Anne um, and wanted to get rid of her um, I don't think there is that much evidence of that before we get deep into 1536. Uh, and it's then in response to the fact that he thinks she's committed adultery with five men, including her brother. So you can sort of see his point. Um, but before that, I don't think he's rushing to try to get rid of her. Um, and so I don't think he necessarily would have had to go back to Catherine. And I think that he's not even thinking about getting rid of Anne until um, such time as it seems that she is completely unpalatable to him. I would just, I would love to do like a whole show on Catherine of Aragon because I don't think people comprehend when you run through this list of um, six queens and do the sort of divorce, beheaded, died, that actually he was married to her for 20 years. It just, I'm, do you know what made me think, as ridiculous as the Tudors was, um, Maria Doyle Kennedy played Catherine of Aragon so well in that series that I would sit and watch her and think, my God, this woman went through absolute hell. I mean, she had her world ripped out from under her. And I just the dignity that she retained and the bravery in standing up to Henry, I just think she's fascinating. I don't know about you. I think yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, I, and that's the thing about these TV programmes, even if one doesn't feel they're doing the history justice they are generally interesting people in history and that's what is so brilliant about them in the end um if they make you go and think i want to know more about the real person then that's great i think catherine of aragon um yes she was queen in the end for nearly 24 years that's double the length of all his other marriages put together and she was so important in teaching him the nature of sovereignty the nature of rule you know one could argue she taught him too well really in the end um, uh, but uh, I think you're right that we quite because of the little ditty we can easily um, pass her off quite quickly but actually she is a woman who acts with extreme dignity um, and is a very impressive character in her own right 
I totally agree. Um, so we have touched upon and execution um, and uh, you've hinted at something else that's to come uh, with Fitzroy. But so if you could break it down for listeners in terms of the succession, why does 1536 change everything? Well, because up until this point, so Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon had been annulled. Once Anne Boleyn is executed, um, Henry also has his marriage to Anne Boleyn annulled. So <laughs> there's, a, there's, as you might notice, a bit of a logical gap there. She's been executed for adultery, but they weren't actually married. But there we go. Um, and so Elizabeth is also now illegitimate. And Henry also makes Mary sign a document swearing to her own bastardy and that the marriage between her parents had been incestuous and unlawful. So those two are very clearly off the table. And his only other child, as we've mentioned, is Henry Fitzroy, Duke of Richmond and Somerset, who is already illegitimate. In 1536, therefore, Henry has to do something to deal with um, worst case scenario. Uh, he dies and there is no legitimate heir. And what he does is he ha an act of succession is passed through Parliament, which says that he uh, can nominate his heir. So in actual fact, much later in the reign, or oh, later in the reign, not much, um, Mary and Elizabeth are put back into the line of succession, um, uh, but never again made legitimate, which causes sort of fun and games for later in the 16th century. But the, the reason this all changes is because of the birth of Edward, because Henry marries Jane Seymour. But I'm skipping ahead here. Um, uh, well, so, so he marries Jane Seymour immediately. I'm skipping ahead with Edward's birth anyway. He marries Jane Seymour immediately after Anne's death in a sort of bravado attempt to prove that he's still a man and, you know, he can still have a wife and all the rest of it. And of course, from his point of view, this is his first real marriage. It's 11 um, days, isn't it, between cutting off Anne Boleyn's head and marrying Jane Seymour? That's right. Um, and uh, they, you know, actually the engagement happens immediately. Um, and then the other thing that crucially happens in July 1536 is that Fitzroy dies. Now, Fitzroy has... It's sort of fairly unknown, but I think quite often, um, but he's actually quite like Henry. He looks like Henry, he's redheaded, he's a similar build. He has, uh, you know, he's good at archery, he's good at playing musical instruments, just like Henry. He's grown up at the court. Um, he's represented Henry at state occasions, um, cheerfully represented Henry the year before at the execution of the Carthusian monks um, <laughs> when they were pulled apart. Um, uh, so, you know, that's nice. Um, and has been married off to the daughter of the second highest nobleman in the land. He himself is the highest peer in the land, but he's married to the daughter of the Duke of Norfolk. So it looks like Henry might have been lining him up to be legitimised in 1536. But he dies that summer and it is a terrible blow, I think, for Henry. So the succession is going through uh, a very difficult time and Henry's making provision for the worst case scenario. Okay, yeah, uh, sorry, I'm going to edit this bit just because I just uh, amended a question with Alina by WhatsApp. So Alina, read what I just sent you and then go into the question because we didn't, there's no bridge to take us from personal to religious. So that's what I'm doing before you go into the question. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. Do you want me to, I, I, can, I can bridge it for you if you want. But... Okay, cool. Yeah. Oh, no, no, go for the question. If you've got it ready to go, go for it. But just, just say what you want. Okay. Um, fine. We'll do it that way. So hold on, let me leave the pause so Alex can edit. We've talked a fair bit about the personal side of 1536. But let's move on to kingly affairs and his rule. Where do we stand on the beginning of 1536 in so far as Henry's overhaul of the church? What began as a means of getting rid of Catherine has turned to something else in the past decade, hasn't it? So, yeah, you're right to say that the arguably it begun with trying to get rid of Catherine, that Henry has noticed that maybe the church in Rome doesn't operate quite as it should, like when he asks for an annulment, it doesn't give it to him. Um, and so he, so there's, although some historians have argued that he would have taken issue with the church anyway, the authority of the church. Basically, Henry has, in 1534, set himself up as supreme head of the Church of England, which means that he has not only temporal control of the country as king um so it's non-spiritual matters but also spiritual authority and that's about as far as it had gone i mean which is not n n nothing small about that um thomas more and 
Bishop John Fisher and those Carthusian monks I mentioned had been executed because they refused to sign they refused to give an oath that said that Anne Boleyn was queen and they refused in large part because the um, pr the, the, the uh, preamble to that oath talked about Henry as being supreme head and as as good Catholics they couldn't possibly accept that the Pope was not the supreme head of the church but it's in 1536 that things really start to get going because that's the year that Henry starts to exercise his supremacy um, and he does so in a number of ways making Cromwell vicegerent which is kind of vicar general um, over uh, church affairs writing his own a set of doctrines um he writes something called the 10 articles which is by henry's own hand um is somewhere between protestantism as it will become and catholicism and he also allows cromwell to come up with a series of royal injunctions um and then finally starts the dissolution of the monasteries and obviously that is um something huge and over the next four years um between 1536 and 1540, 800 religious houses uh, will be dissolved and, um, you know, their, their medieval church plate, their, you know, dissipated, their libraries ransacked, quite often their buildings torn down, the abbots, the monks and nuns within them put out into the streets. So it's, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary change. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Just to um, put it into perspective for people, because I think this is one thing that's hard to grasp for the layman. What does religion mean to people in 1536? It's everything, isn't it? Yes, I mean, there was a big academic dispute some years back about whether it was even conceptually possible to be an atheist in the 16th century, because it was hard to, to describe it. You know, the language didn't really exist. I think they concluded that it was possible. But the point is that people were absolutely um, engaged with the church. It uh, not only sort of wrung out the hours of their day, you know, when you don't have watches, um, it also dictated the the warp and weave of their everyday lives. You know, it, the, you know, baptisms, marriages and funerals, um, the place where you were going to go in the end <laughs> after death. And so it, I think everybody's lives were caught up with that of the church. And the monasteries were an important part of that because they existed um, chiefly to pray for the souls of the dead. So at the time, um, people believed in purgatory as a place that you went to after death to purge off your sins, to work through whatever you know residue was left. Um, and this was a sort of hopeful concept because it was time-limited suffering, and after that you would go to heaven. And the the monasteries were places where you could pay people, basically, to, to pray for the souls of your loved ones who had died, or to pray for yourself after you died. Um, so the, these they were kind of powerhouses of salvation for people. But they also had a more sort of practical, earthly purpose with, in that they provided education and welfare and health care for their local communities in many cases so the destruction of the monasteries was you know, cataclysmic really for people's ordinary lives and for their ideas about what would happen when they died and um, just so what you're saying essentially is that he's ripped open the fabric of people's lives I mean, what was opposition to it like and specifically why is reginald pole a problem when it comes to opposition Okay, so Reginald Paul, or, or Paul, the, the, how we pronounce it, 
um, is debated, um, was basically Henry's cousin, um, and he was um, down from a line, uh, uh, from a Plantagenet line that could have been a threat to Henry's throne. And he, in 1536, wrote Henry uh, a long letter, more like a book, <laughs> in which he told Henry to return to the Roman Catholic Church. And basically, after Anne Boleyn's death, people thought that he would. Um, because they thought, well, you know, they, as we were saying earlier, you know, he's broken, broken with the Roman Catholic Church in order to marry Catherine, so surely he won't be schismatic after... Um, tomorrow, sorry, to, to, marry, to get rid of Catherine, to marry Anne. So surely, he, you know, once he's got rid of Anne, he'll return. But actually, Henry's got pretty invested in his idea of being supreme head. He likes this image of himself <laughs> as uh, the boss of people's spiritual lives. And he likes the idea that he has this, uh, you know, direct hotline to the divine. And so when Reginald Pohl writes to his cousin Henry saying, you know, you are a thief and a murderer and an enemy of Christianity, as some sort of way to try and persuade Henry into returning to the to Rome, it really backfires because that's not how you persuade Henry to do anything. You know, you, it's um, you, you softly, softly, rather than uh, going straight on at him. And the other level of opposition comes from the, the general swell of population. Um, people, ordinary people at this time, don't have much power to indicate their political views because to do so quite often involves being involved involves treasonous activity and one treasonous activity that happens this year is a major major uh, protest uh, a rebellion called the pilgrimage of grace um, in which 30 to 50,000 people here, particularly in the north in Yorkshire and Lincolnshire raise up arms against Henry and start to move south and they're protesting many things but chiefly among them that Henry is supreme head of the Church of England and that he started to dissolve the monasteries. Can I just chuck in a, a segue of sorts? Um, we're talking about domestic affairs. Did he have more um, capability to focus on I always say Henry but I, I'm loath to say does Cromwell who then like does he puppet Henry? I don't know. But do they have more chance um, of focusing on domestic affairs after Catherine's death? Um, because I, I mean, I wondered, does the threat of war with Spain, which has been continuous because he's, he's screwed over the emperor's aunt, Catherine, um, does that dissipate when she dies and give him more chance to focus on domestic affairs? No, I mean, actually sort of almost the opposite because Henry refuses to return to Rome. And so actually in 1536, the, the, the Pope um, uh, prepares a papal ball, which is only issued a couple of years later, but the, which is an order uh, essentially allowing anybody to invade England and take the throne from the schismatic infidel Henry VIII. Um, and so Henry has, is, has been excommunicated and is refusing to conform. And so actually the threat gets greater over the years that follow. Um, and as a result, Henry builds up uh, forts and fortresses along the south coast um, and the east coast of England in order to be able to confront that threat when it comes. And it, the closest thing to it coming is, in, is the attempted invasion of, by France in 1545 but throughout those latter years of his life he doesn't know when um, whether either the, the Spanish or the the um, empire or the French will attempt an invasion so the threat does not go away but your, the, uh, the early point you mentioned is also really interesting because you have touched on one of the sort of key points of discussion about Henry VIII and Cromwell which is whether we should see Henry as a sort of uh, puppet of Thomas Cromwell, for example, or whether we should see Henry as the grand puppet master. Um, is he somebody who is manipulating or manipulated? Um, and it has divided historians over the years. And of course, the answer is, is somewhere in between. <laughs> <laughs> Just, um, You've, we've obviously started to talk about the dissolution of the monasteries, but I just wanted to add as well, in terms of him, as you say, starting to make this shift into becoming this big fat dictator in 1536 and his personality changing and the way he and, and him going all out, if you like. Um, 
how does the dissolution of the monasteries illustrate this? I mean, what's, what does he gain from it? I mean, because it's material, isn't it? As well as spiritual, even if he's arguing that there's a spiritual cause. And I, I think Cromwell fully is invested in his belief that the, the monasteries are corrupt and need to come down. I think he believes that with all his heart and he's not motivated by, let's say, money. But um, how much so is Henry? Well, it, I think it changes over time. So I think that at first there's a case to be made for reforming the monasteries. The first act for the dissolution of the monasteries is the dissolution of the lesser monasteries. And the idea is that those that are you know, less wealthy, have fewer people in them, are running in a much more slack way. Uh, and um, that reforming them and putting the monks and nuns within them into bigger institutions means that things are going to be done more properly. Uh, but... Uh, even that is perhaps a little tenuous because the year before Cromwell had, under Henry's instruction, um, carried out a survey of all the monastic houses. And this is finding out two things. It's finding out their level of vice and laxity. So generally speaking, they're looking for evidence of um, you know, monks engaged in sexual activity either with each other or with um, women. Um, and quite a lot of that evidence is pretty spurious that some of the ways that the language is used uh, are ways that allow for slippages in understanding. Um, you know, so they might talk about monks masturbating, but it's described in such terms as to sound like they're involved in sodomy um, using the language of the time, and that is considered to be um, uh, immoral for their role as a monk. Um, or indeed, at the time, by 1542, has become a capital offence. Um, but uh, they're also looking into the wealth of the, the monasteries. And it is uh, no coincidence that after the Pilgrimage of Grace, which has been a great rebellion in which monks have been involved and Henry thinks that they have been leading it, he orders the sort of wholesale destruction of monasticism. And that means that the wealth of the monasteries comes to the crown. And this is, this is no small amount of wealth. We're talking uh, the equivalent of at least a billion today. It's, uh, it's a, a third of the lands of England are owned by the church. Um, this is the greatest redistribution of land since the Norman conquest. Um, it's the greatest windfall of cash for the crown um, in history to that point. And, um, really transforms Henry's fortunes. And so uh, it's, it, you know, and then they're sold off through something called the Court of Augmentations um, to members of the nobility. And what this means is that, that uh, nobility and gentry, that it means that those members of the nobility and gentry become complicit in Henry's reformation. Um, and that's one thing that Henry does in lots of different ways is to involve the people, to Cromwell does perhaps, who knows, but that the people of the realm are involved in Henry's decisions and become complicit in them. So it can never be said that it was just this one man who did it. You've touched on this already. Uh, we've talked about all of the big key players, but what I really want to know, because I quite find it really interesting about the average Joe. So what did all of this actually mean to the men and women out there on the street in Tudor England? It's a really good question. I think that for many of them, it would have been very confusing that this had been their, their understanding of faith had been pretty secure and it's now being shaken. They don't know what they're allowed to believe. And their confusion is completely understandable. I mean, Henry's getting rid of the monasteries, but at the same time, um, himself has prayers left in his will you know money left in his will for prayers for his soul um you know he's hedging his bets he doesn't really know um so it's not clear whether their people are allowed to read the bible in english at one point it becomes necessary to put a, a bible in every parish church in in the land and then a few years later henry's complains that it's been rhymed and jangled in every alehouse and tavern and restricts who can read the bible so there's this come sort of coming and going one historian says that you must must have had a sort of nightmarish quality trying to figure out what it is that you're allowed to believe what it is that you could say that was going to get you into trouble because in 1534 an act had been passed called the treasons act which by which you could become a, tra a traitor by words. If you said that the king was an infidel or a schismatic or a heretic or a tyrant, you were um, uh, committing treason. If you had, um, if you imagined the king's death 
you were committing treason if you imagined it by saying it out loud imagining some time when the king was dead that was treason so you can see that most people would have not known whether they were coming or going on the other hand um apart from the dissolution of the monasteries for many people perhaps this wasn't having so much of an effect on their daily lives except in the way that it made them fear for future change. So one of the key drivers for the, the Pilgrimage of Grace is that people have said, um, according to one man who is called John Hallam, who's questioned after this, the Pilgrimage of Grace, he says the reasons they did it is because they could see that the abbeys were put down. So they thought that, you know, they're going to get rid of churches next and they're going to get rid of weddings and they're going to, you know, they thought that they, that the, they didn't know what the limits were on what the, the government would do. So I think that's what it's like for ordinary people. It's a, a situation in which perhaps their daily lives aren't changing greatly, but their uh, sense of what might change is provoked to fear, and that leads them to rebel. I think um, it's top to bottom in society as well, isn't it? It's, uh, like I, I think, is it the Duke of Suffolk that firmly believes till the day he dies that it is not for him to read the Bible in English, it's for a priest to read it for he As a layman, he should not read the word of god and and obviously you've already mentioned thomas more who who just spiritually cannot reconcile himself with the idea of uh, pledging allegiance to henry as supreme head of the church I, i've i find him quite a difficult character historically personally i mean this isn't for this conversation but i, I think he's a bit of a hypocrite but but it really is top to bottom people are wrestling with their with their consciences um to some extent aren't they I, th I think that's right. It's throwing everything up into question. And that's the sort of Pandora's box that's opened, actually, by the Reformation, is that you can um, make up your own mind about these things. I mean, Henry doesn't think that anybody should make up their own minds and he'll be making up his mind for them. Thank you very much. But <laughs> actually what it does do is it does create an environment in which one starts to question. And once you start to question, then anything can happen. Um, let's move on. To uh, you've already mentioned um, the pilgrimage of grace, but and and how big it was. But um, I, I think Henry's response to this and how he treated the leaders is very much in keeping with this sort of beginning of the tyrannical side of him, isn't it? Yes, I think that's right. I mean, so uh, Henry is convinced from the start that these rebels are traitors. Um, he talks about their devilish intent, their traitorous ends. You know, he, his language is always one of judgment. And so it's a case of, um, you know, bait and switch. He sends the Duke of Norfolk up to meet them at Pontefract Castle. The Duke of Norfolk promises them various things, including a parliament to consider their concerns in the north of the country and a pardon for their rebellion, because by rebelling, they have committed treason. And so they dissipate, they go home, they're satisfied. Um, and then, uh, you know, the new year comes and there's no sign of the parliament and time goes on, no sign of the parliament. And so fresh revolts break out. And it's just the excuse Henry's been looking for, really, to take savage revenge. Um, and so he sends the Duke of Norfolk back up north in one day in Carlisle. Um, for example, Henry uh, Norfolk carries out 74 executions under the banner of martial law. So they don't need to be put to trial. And that's an indication of Henry's um, determined response to these rebels. It's one that's extreme and says, you know, my will is law. And if you do things that disagree with me, but, you know, effectively during this period of time, in many ways, they're becoming they're becoming treason. OK, go on then, Alina. Sorry, I didn't unmute myself fast enough. Apologies. For that. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> right. <clears throat> Thank you so much for going back in time with us. Um, in terms of, oh, sorry, start again. Right. Alex, you've typed this in in such a weird way that I can't see what you've written. Um, okay. <clears throat> Thanks for going back in time. In terms of where your history head is at, and talking to us about 1536, but you have a new book out and I think it's fair to say it's a labour of love. I think that is fair to say. Yeah, it certainly was a lot of love at work. I think it's also a labour of blood, sweat and tears. Um, I don't think it just love went into it. Um, so it's called The Voices of Neem, Women, Sex and Marriage in Reformation Langdok. And it looks at 
the same century, the 16th century, but across the Channel in France and in the south of France too. And it's looking at the lives of very ordinary people. Um, so it's looking at the lives of women who are seen through um, the records of the Protestant church, amazingly, where people converted to Protestantism in a real minority in France, which is, remains a broadly Catholic country. And actually, they're at times, you know, really involved in warfare as, as Protestants um, in a country that's going through cycles of religious war over the last decades of the 16th century. They decide that the way to deal with this is to establish a very strict moral code and to um, get everyone to adhere to this by setting up kind of church courts. They're called consistories which um, are ways of policing society. So neighbours are asked to report on each other um, about what uh, is going on, who's sleeping with people they shouldn't be sleeping with, who's creeping around at night to make that happen, um, that sort of thing. And it generally tells us a lot about moments when things went wrong in society. So it gives us an insight into things like um, illegitimate pregnancies and marital quarrels and rapes um, and sex outside of marriage um, when that ends often in as I say in a pregnancy um, that leaves uh, you know say a maid servant unemployed and having to bring up a child without any money these sort of moments make it into the consistory records and so they gave me a wonderful kind of uh, wealth of material to write about ordinary women's lives in a way that we don't often get access to. It sounds like so, Susanna. I'm really curious because this is a little. I mean, I, I know you're um, epic at, at this period of history and not just confined, but you've written about English history. Uh, where did you get the idea to go out and and find these French voices and do a book at them about them? So I was actually working on the French stuff even before I was working on the English stuff. Um, and it came from the fact that um, back when I was um, an undergraduate, I was we, we had the option of doing um, what was called a comparative history essay. So I was comparing uh, religious violence um, in two different countries in two different times. India, actually, in the 19th and 20th centuries. And... France in the 16th century between Catholics and Protestants. And it was out of that that I thought that there maybe was something interesting about how women are treated. You know, women in times of war often are the um, recipients of particularly savage abuse. And uh, it seemed that there was something about their religious involvement that was interesting. And that's where it sort of came from, that I started thinking about Protestant women in the 16th century. Um, and you know, I was just interested in finding out more about that. Um, but I got, I got a, a, a tip off as it were, <laughs> some people who had worked on this before, um, the wonderful Robin Briggs, who in the end was my doctoral supervisor, um, among them suggested that, um, that perhaps these, uh, church court records might have something in them. And by the time I started working on them, most people who had worked on them before had which is a very small number of people had used them to write about ecclesiastical history and no one had really used them to talk about women but they he had a hunch and what a hunch it turned out to be Susanna can you tell us about the breadth of your sources and did you go out and find more beyond this yeah so the sources um, are pretty broad so they so the consistory the church court that I used um, uh, sort of a court, you know, um, exists in various different um, towns and cities where people converted to Protestantism. So I looked at 16 different towns and cities. In the end, I used, uh, used records from 10 of them in my book. Um, the biggest run, for example, was from Nîmes um, from 1560 to 1615, although there are some years missing in the middle. Uh, from Montauban, another southern French town, for a few years in the 1590s, but really detailed records. And from a whole bunch of other villages and towns in the south of France. And these, these are kept in you know, departmental archives in Paris, all over the place. But apart from those, I also did a whole lot of backup research. So trying to chase down the women in my cases in baptismal marriage registers or in notarial records, things like wills and marriage contracts. And also trying to get a sense of both the kind of operation of the church. So looking at, you know, synods of the Protestant church and their kind of 
their writings, but also about how the town justice worked. So looking at records of the consuls, uh, criminal registers, um, town council meetings, that sort of thing, so that I could build up a picture of the nature of power in these towns and really figure out where the church's role fitted into all of this. It just sounds amazing. Tell everyone again the title of the book so they can run out and order it now for lockdown. <laughs> it's called The, Vo- the Voices of Nîmes um, and uh, the subtitle is Women, Sex and Marriage and Reformation Long Dock. And the, I have to say these records have just given, they're, they're really they're extraordinary insights into people who were uh, quite often quite violent, quite rude, uh, quite saucy, um, and who are just fascinating characters. And it, it was, it was just felt like a real burden on me to bring these incredible women's stories back to life for people to know. It just, it's the stuff of dreams. If I mean, I'm excited for you about finding the sources like a nerd as a historian. I know Alina is too. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Thank you. Um, We've now finished two weeks on History Hack and I cannot thank people like Susanna who've given us their time. Thank you so much. But also people out there listening. We have listeners in nearly 60 countries, according to the stats. Um, You're all incredible. Um, Tomorrow, join us uh, to listen in on Roger Morehouse talking about his new book, First to Fight, which is all about the Polish campaign of 1939. That's a fascinating interview. I know Alina was massively excited to have him. I I was, I really was. I can't can't say I wasn't. So my line of history. So yay. (laughs) Right, ladies and gentlemen, remember, stay safe and more importantly, if you can stay at home, this is Nighthawk signing off. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.